from high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. Just like the guy said, we have an exciting show. Big hour. Uh, the governor of Louisiana is going to be with us shortly, Jeff Landry. I uh, always love talking to him. He's got an important message as it relates to the number one issue in America, and that is illegal immigration. And then Jared Cohen, a former and uh, IDF officer, CEO of Jigsaw and Alphabet, a former advisor to secretaries of state, Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton, and best-selling author of five books, Jared Cohen, on the uh, battle for Gaza as well as what a truce might look like, what a ceasefire might look like, and why the prime minister walked away from the deal that was on the table, which, by the way, I'm pretty glad about. Uh, And meanwhile, what we're up against in the region, too. Yes, the United States of America. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like if the Supreme Court said, we're removing the front-running a Republican candidate from the ballot. And I think it would be very, very disruptive uh, in this country. No kidding, David Oxenrod. You're right again. Trump trials and Joe's own document drama. We're going to look at the challenges outside the campaign trail for both front runners. Number two. He said that nobody in the military told him he could have left a smaller number of troops in Afghanistan. And then he was contradicted by his own military saying no. He was briefed about that. This is what happens when a president cannot recall his briefings. It's deadly serious. You know, a couple of things. Ari, that might have been the case. He also knows differently and knows that politically he could just lie about it. Uh, 2024, gaps piling up for Joe Biden. The more we see him, the more I feel American Democrats are getting closer to panic mode as minorities are now running for the hills from Biden and his party. Number one. Well, they all were. Joe Biden, the mayor, the governor, they all felt that open borders gave them new constituencies. And they called anybody racist or xenophobic who wanted to secure border. So they've got a problem. They can't square the circle. Can't square the circle. That might be a problem, Victor Davis Hanson. Down goes the border bill. Plan B is now just emergency aid for Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel. What does it mean for the border crisis? And will there be a round two on impeaching Mayorkas? We will examine. Governor Jeff Landry joins us now, the 57th governor of Louisiana. Governor, welcome back. Brian, thank you for having me. Good morning. Hey, about 4.30 Eastern today. The, universe, uh, the Texas governor is going to have a press conference to talk about the progress with making his own makeshift wall with containers and barbed wire and taking over Shelby Park. You were quick to say you can have borrow my National Guard. What has that been like, the communication been like, and what has it done for the illegal immigration problem they tell you in Texas? Well, look, uh, I went down, I traveled down Eagle Pass on uh, Sunday with a, a number of other governors, um, including uh, Sarah Sanders and, and others. Her and I traveled together down there to Eagle Pass and, and, and were briefed by Governor Abbott. And I tell you, it is unbelievable. I mean, the things that the Louisiana, I mean, that the Texas National Guard, uh, with the aid of some other states, have been able to do in that short period of time uh, has basically shut off. Uh, a gaping hole in the border uh, and stop um, what was at one time, you know, thousands and thousands of people uh, migrating into the country illegally. What's amazing, too, Brian, is that if you go there, you will see that that park sits underneath two legal ports of entry, two bridges that have legal ports of entry that are right. run by customs. 
Okay, so what the government is doing, this is how ridiculous it is. The government says, hey, you can't come through where it's legal. We're going to just let you, we're going to just close our eyes while you swim across the Rio Grande. I mean, it's the most unbelievable, most ridiculous thing in the world. So we go there. Uh, we got a great briefing. We toured the border. We saw, um, you know, what some Connex boxes and some Constantine wire can do. I mean, just think about how, how relatively inexpensive that was, um, and to, which, which absolutely worked. And, and, then, and then I leave, and I come back to Louisiana, and I pick up the paper, or I, I get a bulletin on my phone that says that the Senate has come up with a border package. And then I look at the highlights of that border package, and I read it, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. 50% of the funding, $60 billion is going to Ukraine. So I asked my wife. I said, honey, could you grab me an atlas, a very new one? I did not know that Ukraine was a border state. And, I mean, this is the kind of nonsense that's going on, right? It's ridiculous. And if you look at the amount of, that it's costing the taxpayers on this open border pro, uh, policy, I mean, 30,000 pounds of fentanyl, enough. Right. We worry about nuclear well, weapons. I, in New York, we see not only the fentanyl, and then we see the people. And now we see these illegal immigrants beating up cops. Now we have this genius mayor who says, I'll, I'll give them credit cards. Well, I'll give them cash cards so they can spend money on their own lunch every day while we're doing their laundry. And, and that's where this money's going. Now you have the mayor begging the state governor in New York for additional money to pay for at least half the illegal immigrants. But it's all because, uh, Governor, they're not like you guys. They're a sanctuary city, you know, a sanctuary state. California is a sanctuary state. They, they got what's coming to them. Oh, absolutely. Let me tell you something. One of the most ingenious things that's ever happened was when Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis went out there and started busting all these migrants from the border, okay, and that, that were piling into their states and sending them up to those blue states. Because, you know, as long as the problem was not theirs, they thought that there was no problem. And then all of a sudden they realized, oh, wait a minute, this is a problem. And I tell you what, if they pick up the phone and call the Democrats on the Senate side who claim that it's Republicans that are dysfunctional, Okay, because that's what the mainstream media, that's what I read all the time. Republicans in chaos on the Hill. No, Democrats are creating mayhem and they are in disorder because we've got a border that is completely porous, that's that's letting people in uh, who want to come in and harm the country. I know what you're saying, but the Republicans don't look great, especially in the House. They're trying to impeach Mayorkas, don't even have the votes. And if the Republicans and the Republicans actually put themselves into a corner, they said, we're not going to give you foreign aid unless you come up to fix the border. So they've set up this committee to do it. Nobody. A lot of people don't like it. Forty one senators vote against it. And now the Democrats can turn around and go, yeah, we gave you what you wanted. Now vote for the foreign aid. So I want you to hear. uh, Go ahead. I want you to comment on that. Well, I'll say, Brian, that is completely what the facts on the ground are. But go over there and talk to the American people. Go over there and talk to anyone, irrespective of their party affiliation, and ask them whether or not their tax money right now is better spent in this country domestically than overseas. Okay? Go ask any of them. I mean, we've got poor infrastructure. We've got bridges collapsing. We've got an open border. I mean, the list goes on. We've got inflationary costs. We've got all of these things while Congress and the Democrats sit there and want to pour billions and billions and billions overseas. I mean, like, yeah. can well, we put it this way. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel differently. I, I would think we have to back Ukraine uh, and, you know, obviously track the money. 
put people there that you trust, can follow every gun to the front line. But those people fight like warriors, and the Russians are our enemies. I want you to hear Steph Knight of Axios last night. She says that even Democrats know this is a problem. Cut 24. I've heard from Democrats and from immigration advocates who had real concerns with the bill from the left. And, you know, you look at the policy behind this deal. You know, I've dug into the bill text. And the reality is the White House did concede quite a bit on some of these measures. This would have imposed some real asylum restrictions. Um, and, of course, Republicans say that President Biden could be doing more with the authority he has. And that is true. But you know, the Senate had an opportunity to try to force Biden's hand through law, and they stepped away from that, which is certainly remarkable to see. Um, and certainly we've seen the blame game begin with Republicans still trying to pin this on President Biden. And kind of for the first time, Democrats going on offense with the border issue, trying to point the fingers back at Republicans. I mean, I don't see that whole jujitsu thing resonating with independence, moderates, and clear-thinking Americans. They know who broke the border. But it, you would have to say it is kind of clumsy the way they are, the way the Republicans kind of walked into it. Oh, look, right. You're not going to get me apologizing for Republicans on the Hill's poor way of messaging yeah. things. Uh, I mean, we know that that's been a, that's been a decade after decade old problem. I mean, look, I served up, up on the Hill as well. But, here, but look, I can tell you. When Trump was there, it's not like he had his way with Congress. It's not like Congress gave him everything he wanted. But yet he went in there and he found ways to solve problems. And and, and the, the president can. He can take – he's got some unilateral action that he could take, certainly. I'll tell you what he could do. If he doesn't want, if he doesn't want it on his hands, he could, he, could, he could reprogram some of the money at DOD and send it to those states that are sending troops like, like we are. National Guard troops down to the border, they'll seal it off. I mean, the, 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 the people that are coming, let, let me tell you what it's like. It's like, Brian, if I gave you a bowl of grapes, and I said, Brian, these, look, how about you take a couple of grapes? But by the way, there's a poison grape in there. Like, would you put your hand in it? No. Nope. And, and that's what's going on in the border. Yep. Like, think about, we, we, we have the facts on our side that show the amount of criminal activity that is pouring across the border that is affecting real Americans. I mean, everyone knows someone who's lost a loved one to a fentanyl overdose. We're losing 125,000 people a year. That is directly coming up across the border. And so that's what, if you want to talk about national security, the most existential threat we have, the national security and domestic peace in this country is at our border. Yeah, no question. So, so Governor, Right now, the president, of the, United, the former president of the United States, is out comfortably in front uh, of uh, of Nikki Haley. Is Nikki Haley hurting the party by staying in? Do you, or do you give her credit for hanging in? Well, I mean, listen. I think that I think that by now, after you lose to nobody, um, in uh, like she did. I mean, I mean, I think I think it's time to pack your bags and go to the house. You know, I mean, why would you why would you continue to go out there where evidently uh, the people are, uh, of of, of the country, and especially those inside the party, okay, have said, look, this is the guy, this is the candidate that we want on the ballot to run for president in November. I mean, why would you particularly bucket when right. when state after state primary uh, so far overwhelmingly has chosen President Trump? A couple of things. Uh, I know you have uh, Louisiana has a, a substantial black population. And look at these numbers. Minority Democrats or lean Democrat voters in 2020 
In 2020, 66% of black adults lean Democrat. Uh, in 2020, 28% of Hispanic adults lean Democrat. Now, in 2023, only 47% of black adults lean Democrat and 12% of Hispanics. What's going on and what can Republicans do to not only not be Democrats, but to answer to be an alternative for uh, black and Hispanic voters? Well, look, I think if they look at the way we won in October, I mean, remember, I won the governorship in a historic primary win because Louisiana has this convoluted jungle primary system. No one, no governor, no gubernatorial candidate had won outright the first time. But we went out there and we resonated a message that really didn't that talked about how we were going to do things in a conservative principle way. We didn't compromise our principles, but we spoke to everyone. I mean, crime affects everyone. Okay, education affects any, everyone. The economy affects everyone. And certainly at the federal level, uh, voters look towards the economy. And if they think about the, the four years that they had under President Trump, and they compare it to what their pocketbooks look like today under President Biden, that's why you're seeing those numbers move. And, of course, if Republicans on a grander scale right. would take up that particular message, I Absolutely. think we could solve some of these problems. It would be great. It would be great if, uh, if uh, Republicans went in there to Chicago – uh, to New Orleans, uh, to uh, to Austin, you know, to the major cities that they just kind of give up on and just say, listen, this is my message. And if you don't get it this time, you get it next time. And then people realize that that the Republican Party cares. And I think that I and it would be every to the whole country's benefit, uh, Governor. And I, I know I'm speaking to the choir with that. Governor Jeff Landry, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks for everything. Look forward to being with you again. Absolutely. I love what you guys did in Texas because it's pro-American. And I appreciate the, your National Guard. So when we come back, I'll take your calls, 1-866-408-7669. What about that, uh, what about that uh, ceasefire agreement? Why did Benjamin Netanyahu walk away from it? Was the right thing? Uh, Jared Cohen joins us at the bottom of the hour. But you're next. Your calls. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Well, they all were. Joe Biden, the mayor, the governor, they all felt that open borders gave them new constituencies. And they called anybody racist or xenophobic who wanted a secure border. They said, oh, you believe in the great replacement theory, even, Sean, as they were writing books called The New Democratic, Democrat, Democratic Majority or Demography is Destiny. So they've got a problem. They can't square the circle, Sean. They, on the one hand, they want all these people to come in, but now immigration with crime and the economy are the three chief issues, and they're all pulling against their interests. So what do they do? Yeah, what do they do? Victor Davis Hanson, uh, there's not one word wasted. He has so much perspective, not only a historian, but a military historian on top of that. And he's watching what's happening at the southern border and says, you know, we, you know, this, these people who have a diminished view of America, that we took the lands for the Indians and were built on the backs of slavery. One of the reasons that they believe, many of them believe, that the way to equal it all out is to let everybody in and just, I don't know, level the playing field in the best possible scenario. Well, guess what happened? Everyone stood up and said, you're ruining this country. There is no reason for it. You're doing it intentionally. Then we're not going to tolerate it. And now the sanctuary city, once it looked like it was, if you stood up against sanctuary cities, it looks like you weren't tolerant 
to immigrants or you don't like Hispanics. And that's what's the deal in 2017 when President Trump took over. It is not the deal now. I think that if he just tries to get rid of sanctuary cities, sanctuary states like California, I bet you the things uh, go to the president's direction on that if he becomes president again. So uh, we're going to take a look at that. But when we look at both parties, it's amazing how everything has switched, how it used to be, wow, those Republicans, those white-collar guys are not can't really resonate with the average American like Democrats. That has switched. The Republicans are now the blue-collar party, and, and most rural voters see eye-to-eye eye with people that pretty much never farmed in their life, like Donald Trump. Listen to T.W. Shannon, a Republican, Cut 17. It looks like there's a complete realignment where the Republican Party is now the party of the working class and the Democrat is the party of the elites. When you look at a Taylor Swift, who's probably going to endorse Joe Biden from her plane, while they're also calling for the rest of Americans to ride on bicycles to get to work every day. The truth is this election is going to be about security. It's national security. It's border security. It's financial security and it's personal security. And the Democrats and Joe Biden, they failed on all of those issues. Uh, and, and the voters are not going to soon forget that. Black Americans, Hispanic Americans are hurting like every other American. But maybe they're hurting worse because the people that are crossing our border illegally, the 2.5 million, they're not buying homes uh, in, in Martha's Vineyard. They're not. And if people want to know, there's a couple of reasons why uh, Trump took control of the nomination and is in, up in almost every national poll, even though it's far from done. The court case is yes. But for the most part, all of his policies compare favorably to what Joe Biden has done on the economics, even though the numbers are looking uh, better for Joe Biden on on the border, on the Middle East policy, on Europe, on trade, on our military and mood. If you look at some of those things uh, on oil, on pipelines, on on the cost of energy, you know, Donald Trump was not saying, I, I need your gas stove. Donald Trump was not saying, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to sell any more gas cars. That's this president and his climate zone. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. When I look at people who I know were horrified by January 6th, who are Republicans in the House and the Senate, who have come around to dismissing it, to discounting the horror that they themselves felt yeah. as they, you know, put put themselves under desks, as they ran down hallways, as they tried to escape the mob coming at them. There is something about Trump's hold on the Republican Party that is frightening. That is Hillary Clinton, who really doesn't – she really does seem befuddled that uh, that Trump is still popular and has come all the way back, especially after 2022. A lot of his candidates did not work out, and now he's sitting on top. He's just about locked up. Everything up should do it if Nikki Haley lasts till South Carolina, although she plans on staying through Super Tuesday. I don't know anybody who doesn't think he's got the nomination locked up, which is just shows he had a remarkable run to become president, then lost the presidency. We know that everything happened in between – but then to try to go back would be historical. Only one has actually done it and won. Jared Cohen joins us now, founder and CEO of Jigsaw at Alphabet, former advisor to two secretaries of state, Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton, and best-selling author of five books, his latest being Life After Power, Seven Presidents and Their Search for Purpose Beyond the White House. And Jared, 
Uh, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Brian. So first off, the attraction of wanting this job back, this is what Lindsey Graham told me. I, you know, I met with uh, Trump after he lost, and I told him, you don't need to do this. You don't need to run again. Go golf. Go do a tour of the, of the world. You, know, you don't need to do it. You know, your celebrity is going to pick up. Uh, but yet he wants to get back. That's all he does to get back. From your experience studying what this position's about and, and how hard it is to turn the page after you leave the White House, do you understand it? Look, presidents don't want to think about their time in office as their penultimate act, right? They, they view it as their greatest act, which is why they don't want to give it up. It's, it's, it's the most dramatic retirement in the world, which is why the founding fathers worried about what to do with ex-presidents. You know, Alexander Hamilton pondered this question of, you know, is it good for the republic to have half a dozen men at any given time wandering around the rest of us like disenchanted ghosts? Uh, or discontented. And, that, and he wrote, and you wrote that quote before in your book. He, he writes it in, in, in Federalist 72. Well, what, what worries him? Well, so I think what, what worried him is, remember, they, they, were, they were trying to construct a republic in response to a monarchy, right? There weren't a lot of examples that the founding fathers had for the peaceful transfer of power. What they were creating was something truly novel. They just had a lot of things on their plate. And I think what's amazing about this question of what to do with ex-presidents we never really formalized it in the Constitution. We kind of winged it throughout history, and there's not a lot of good examples. What I do in the book is I basically highlight seven U.S. presidents who managed to find a greater sense of purpose after they left the office. So one thing that struck people is that President Obama chose to stay in Washington. I know he's young, but a lot of people say, you know, I'm going to move on. You know, Kenny Bunkport, uh, where uh, uh, 41 stayed, and uh, Reagan went to his ranch, and LBJ went to his ranch in Texas— how unique is it that he stayed in Washington and seems to still be a player? So John Quincy Adams was the first one to stay in Washington, but the circumstances were very different. His wife was, was, was terribly ill and it was too icy and he couldn't make the journey back up to Quincy. But I think what you see with President Obama is something that a lot of former presidents, particularly in modern times, struggle with, which is they're constrained by the norm of one president at a time, but they just can't resist the urge to keep their, 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 their toe in the water. They can't resist the urge to insert themselves. And the symbolism of a former president staying in Washington, to me, symbolizes and captures this idea of how difficult it is to let go. Right. And maybe not great for the country, especially with people's perception. People's perception is that your older vice president is president. He is not at the top of his game. Who's calling the shots? Could it be that guy five miles away? <laughs> And by the way, it's very confusing. If you look at if you look at Jimmy Carter, right, you know, longest active post-presidency in history, 42, 42 plus years. He's the answer to Hamilton's question of what to do with ex-presidents, which is they can either be a tremendous ally to their successors or they can be a nuisance and their most formidable adversary. And Carter managed to do both. But he didn't do it living in Washington. He still lived. He went back home uh, to Plains. And there, look, there, there's there's almost kind and of you're a, referring, Jared, to the fact that he went over to the North Korea. He got involved there trying to get hostages out. He went over to Haiti. He was over there trying to run elections internationally. And a lot of times I think he got on Bill Clinton's nerves a little bit, too. I mean, he, 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 Carter is a tremendous contrast. And again, he, he represents the best and both and, and the worst of, of, of what ex-presidents can do. So he, he goes over to North Korea um, as a messenger for the Clinton administration and Clinton in 1994. And Clinton tells him under no certain terms, are you to make any policy? And Carter says, fine, fine. Um, and then Clinton turns on CNN and there's Carter announcing a nuclear breakthrough. By the way, when the U.S., when George H.W. Bush was readying to send troops in to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, Jimmy Carter, who didn't want to see a war, secretly wrote to four of the five permanent members of the Security Council urging them to oppose his own country's policy. Unbelievable. Uh, why do you who are the seven and why would you pick them? 
So I chose uh, Thomas Jefferson, John Quincy Adams, Grover Cleveland, uh, William Howard Taft, Hoover, Carter, and George W. Bush. Each one of those seven men um, had something that they were deeply principled about. They doubled down on those principles after they left the White House and ended up finding greater purpose than their time as president. Thomas Jefferson went on to found the University of Virginia. It's one of only three things he includes on his tombstone. He doesn't include being president. John Quincy Adams had arguably the greatest second act in American history, he served nine terms in the House of Representatives, were in a much lower station. He found a much higher cause of abolition. Cleveland became president again, so kind of hard, hard to argue with that. Uh, William Howard Taft got his dream job as chief justice of the Supreme Court in his final decade of life. Herbert Hoover's story. You know, this is a After man. member family, William Howard Taft famously went against Teddy Roosevelt, challenged the guy he mentored, uh, and Woodrow Wilson ended up becoming president. But what happened to him after? Yeah, so 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 William Howard Taft, um, you know, he never he didn't like being president. He was actually he, all he ever wanted was to, to to serve on the Supreme Court. He turns it down three times um, in his life before becoming president. He nominates a record six justices to the Supreme Court, including a chief justice as president. The only reason he seeks reelection in 1912 is deny to deny his one time friend and, and and former mentor Theodore Roosevelt the presidency. It's an amazing story because by the time Taft you know gets the nomination for the Republican Party, he's basically a political dead man and his his vice presidential running mate dies just a week before the election. So you literally have, you know, Theodore Roosevelt as a third party bull moose challenging the incumbent president whose ticket is literally a political dead man and a physical corpse. Um, and he yeah. splits the party and gives the election to, to Wilson. Say Roosevelt got, actually got the second most votes as a third party, right? And, and you end up with Woodrow Wilson, you know, for for for, for eight years as, as as president, right? Um, and then look, you know, Herbert Hoover this is a man who lived to be ninety years old. He's defined by you know four years that that he was in office, defined by the Great Depression. His story is a great one of recovery. He recaptures you know his you know status as a great humanitarian, which he had before being president. He recaptures his status as a great executive you know, reorganizing the executive branch. And he recaptures his status in his lifetime as a bipartisan figure when Joe Kennedy calls on him to reconcile JFK and Richard Nixon after the 1960 election. Wow, pretty amazing, uh, because obviously there was that was a controversial result. And, and it was important because the country was sort of in the, the height of the Cold War, showing that bipartisan unity was important. And, you know, I think the tragedy for Herbert Hoover, who's still getting kind of trashed and whose name is still political fodder, you know, even in, in, in this election, he actually recovers his good name in his lifetime and then just gets trashed again posthumously. Right. And you're talking about the fact that Donald Trump said uh, if, it comes, if the economy is going to collapse, I hope it collapses under him because I don't want to inherit something like Herbert Hoover. I mean, the FDR guys, they, they really did a, a job on, on, on Herbert Hoover. You know, his 12 years of self-imposed political exile, I mean, it just felt like the FDR presidency would, would, would never end. And it's interesting. Harry Truman resurrects Herbert Hoover uh, in 1945 after FDR dies because he's staring, you know, the, the end of the war, World War II on the horizon. And there's only one man um, in history who knows what it's like to be president of the United States and feed a, war, a world that's facing starvation. So he and Herbert Hoover, they form this kind of unlikely partnership. But then every time there's an election, Truman goes out and talks about Hoovervilles and talks about Hoover carts. And it's just this torturous experience for Hoover that his entire life, every single election, no matter what he does, he still becomes a soundbite on the election trail. I think his great granddaughter is Margaret Hoover. And I got to know her a little bit. And she really is making that admission to enough. You know, and this when this came up again, he says, we should correct the record on that. Yeah. First of all, a lot of stuff you inherit. Let's be honest. Look, Margaret talks about how, you know, you know, her father, who was who was Herbert Hoover's, you know, grandson gets a 
punched in the face on the schoolyard for for being tied to you know a man that 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 you know um, it was his grandfather. And look, you know, Mar- Margaret's one of the great Americans. She and I have talked a lot about Herbert Hoover over the years, and we're on kind of a mission to make Herbert Hoover great again. Oh, that's awesome! All right, I'll I'll join in that. Uh, I love I love people to make a difference, uh, and. Don't get they don't get credit for it. So if you can rehab it, that's fantastic. So you would one of my favorite all time people is George W. Bush, and I I I just thought the perfect name of his book was Decision Points because that's him. Like oh okay, you're critical of my decision. All right, it's fine. Let me just put you in my shoes, and then if you still you're still critical, that's fine too. But maybe you should learn a little bit about what my decision what what was what was at stake when I made the decisions I made. He wanted to be the education president. Then nine eleven happened. And people say, well, you know what? There was a report over the summer that said bin Laden determined to attack in America. How did you miss that? So I, I, so George, the George Bush chapter in the book, I call it moving on. Because um, when I looked at the active living presidents, there was only one whose popularity had doubled. And I figure, you know, even for it's his. Yeah. And it's his. And, and by the way, he's accomplished that by investing less in his you know, legacy than any of his active contemporaries. It must drive Bill Clinton completely mad. Um, oh, I love his library. I had a chance to see it. And, and look, his, his library is a reflection of his values. But I think part of why I wanted to understand why Bush's popularity had more than doubled. I think, look, he has this reverence for the Washington principle of when it's over, it's over. Um, and you have to separate from from politics after you've been after you've been president. It's aged well, um, you know, given, you know, you have a former president, uh, you know, Donald Trump, who's now, you know, on the path to the nomination. And, and, and let's just say he's not quiet. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, Americans have gotten nostalgic uh, about this idea of a president who kind of reveres the Washington principle of one president at a time. And they like watching him paint. Right. I mean, he's in, you know, Bush is in his mid 70s and they're seeing him, you know, kind of find a post-presidential voice through painting that allows him to advance causes that matter to the American people like veterans without undermining his successors. Jared Cohen with us. He's got his book out now, Life After Power, Seven Presidents in Their Search for Purpose Beyond the White House. What I also think is fascinating, and I saw it up close, is Bush 43 is tied with Bill Clinton, who beat his father. And his father and Bill Clinton got along. And I was great to see Bill Clinton look up to 41. And they did a lot of things together. I think the American people love seeing that. And then when Barack Obama came president, he was saying so many negative things about Bush 43. And Gates writes about it in his book. He said, hey, guys, I'm here because the Secretary of Defense carried over to the Obama administration. Not a, you know a lot of stuff that you're saying is flat out wrong, and a lot of decisions we made are a lot better than you think, and we'll kind of stick up for it. And 43 kept quiet, always kept quiet. And then when it was time to dedicate the library, President Obama shows up and he says something. If I can remember correctly, he says, "You might disagree with George Bush, but it's impossible not to like George Bush." I think that's right. Look, out of the 45 men who served as president 46 times, because Cleveland did it twice, only one president has been so dogmatically disciplined about fading from politics. Bush never mentions his successors by name. He never hits the campaign trail publicly. He doesn't insert himself. He did once with Jeb, right? But 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 it was an act. But but it was it was actually record. It was a private. It was a private event. Okay. Um, and he described it as one of the most cringeworthy moments of his post presidency. And it's a moment that he reminded himself that you have to be disciplined, not just in public, but also disciplined in private. And George W. Bush, look, look, the, the symbolism of two former foes coming together is also a reminder that this very idea of a former president, it's a feature of a democracy. It's not a bug. 
And particularly at this moment, you know, people may not like the current set of circumstances, but there's a lot of countries where you don't get to be a former president. Or if you are, you're either, you know, in prison for life or suffering some kind of other ill fate. Right. You know who also had those qualities that never became president is John McCain. And I know that when he was able to give credit to Barack Obama after he lost that crushing defeat to him and he just said able to outline that moment, I think it's just so important to learn how to lose. Bush 41 knew how to lose. He hated losing. We got those tapes later on where he talked about how he thought he let everybody down by losing to Bill Clinton. Uh, but he he lost with grace. Yeah, I think that's right. By the way, you know, it's inter- it's it's a it's a worthy time to reflect on Grover Cleveland as well because this election is likely going to feature the only. Can I, can I talk yep. about Grover Cleveland when we come back? Yes. All right. So Jared Cohen, it's great to have him here. Uh, he's an advisor to, uh, to uh, Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton, best-selling author. A perspective about the times we're going through because some of which is unprecedented to a degree, but not as much as you think. Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, uh, we are back. Uh, The author of Life After Power, Jared Cohen, with us right now. Uh, He's got a great book out, uh, Sir... uh, uh, it's called Seven Presidents in Their Search for Purpose Beyond the White House. Grover Cleveland, we keep hearing about this. First time we're seeing a, uh, we're seeing a president very close to getting back into office, and it's President Trump. He wins, he loses, and he wants to win again. How rare is this? So first of all, um, historically, you know, in my, you know, the Grover Cleveland chapter is, is called, you know, the comeback. And, you know, it's not, you know, historically, former presidents have not made good presidential candidates. You know, this is going to, this 2024 election is likely going to be the first and only time since 1892 where two former presidents have had a rematch as nominees. And who was that in 1892? So it's Grover Cleveland versus, versus Benjamin Harrison. Okay. Um, and Cleveland, when he's elected in 1884, is the first Democrat elected president um, since James Buchanan before the before the Civil War. And what people don't realize about Cleveland is he never loses the popular vote. So that's already different from the 2024 election. He actually threw away the presidency in 1888 on a principle of standing strong on a low tariff. And he said he's never been happier than when he threw away the presidency. And he also you know, entered office as a bachelor um, at 49 years old, married a 21-year-old who's the youngest first lady in American history. Um, and he never wants – he doesn't fantasize about going back into office. The only reason he tries to make a comeback is similarly on principle. He's worried the Harrison administration is driving the economy into the ground. He's worried about a rising tide of imperialism, and he's worried about runaway uh, populists within his own party um, and within – the Republican Party. And so he makes a sort of reluctant comeback, but he wins the popular vote three times in a row. Well, and so and then becomes president again. Um, and somewhere in the between there, Teddy Roosevelt is cutting his teeth and getting ready. And the turn of the century would be the rise uh, and in the beginning of the end of the imperialism, right? That's right. And look, look, you know, Grover, what I say in the book is Grover Cleveland's comeback is a cautionary tale. Um, right. You know, first of all, comebacks are easy to ponder. They're hard to accomplish. And when you accomplish, it's rarely the same and as sweet the second time around. Um, the context changes. You come in overconfident. You think you know how to do it. The dynamics are different. The day Grover Cleveland takes the oath of office um, for his second um, non-consecutive term as president, he inherits the worst economic depression in the country's history. Um, American settlers in Hawaii have set in motion um, a process that would lead to the annexation of the islands. And he feels a lump um, on the top of his mouth and realizes that he may have terminal cancer. Wow. A uh, couple of things. One thing Trump says on and off camera, I know exactly what to do now. 
And one thing Bill Clinton expressed is frustration because I get it. I know exactly how to do this job. Same with Barack Obama. He's like, I get it. It takes a while, especially it's harder now, I think, today. It takes a while, but they, they seem to get it. So Trump can't wait to put people in power again. Yeah, look, I think the second if – if There's you, no ramp-up time. There, there's no ramp-up time, but a lot has changed in the four years. The, the, the interregnum you know, is, inter, it is an interregnum that a former president doesn't have a front-row seat for. Um, you know, they're not in it day-to-day, right? You know, they, 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 they're, they're both nostalgic um, for the last time around, and their frame of reference reflects a set of biases and assumptions from the last time around, and they bring that – to the second presidency. And so, you know, Grover Cleveland's, you know, second presidency was, was not a pleasant one. He, he, you know, again, this is a man who won the popular vote three times. He left office the second time, deeply unpopular, deeply depressed, and just having lost valuable years we could have spent with his young bride. Wow. This is such an important book, and it seems like it's all in, uh, all in your head, Jared. It's just a matter of just putting it into writing. Uh, Jared Cohen, Life After Power, Seven Presidents and Their Search for Purpose Beyond the White House. Get it wherever you get books. Jared, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. I come to you from Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world, and once again, this is at the it's where the big story in New York is also the big story in Texas is also the big story in Washington, the big story in Arizona, and I'm sure California if they had some clear thinking uh, politicians, and that is uh, immigration, the breakdown of our border and the ripple effects through it and how other people say, wait a second. Uh, I'm somebody who's working class. I'm seeing so much of my paycheck going out the door. I see. Uh, I know we have homeless and veterans that can need some some funding. Why are we letting everybody in, doing their laundry, converting hotels? Why is mayors begging governors for millions of dollars, like happening here in New York? I'm going to discuss that with Mark Tisa as well as Sean Alexander. Uh, I'll discuss with him and have some fun. Uh, the Seattle Seahawks all-time leading rusher and outstanding uh, running back at uh, the University of Michigan. He's going to be he's out in Las Vegas. He's going to give us an idea of what's going to happen at the Super Bowl, which we'll all be watching over the weekend, or at least in front of a television while we talk about other things. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like if the Supreme Court said, we're removing the front-running uh, Republican candidate from the ballot. And I think it would be very, very disruptive uh, in this country. Thank you, D- David Axelrod, for talking sense. Trump trials begin right now, and Joe's own document drama starts today or tomorrow, or sometime this week, Robert Hur is going to be done with his investigation. We're going to look at the challenges outside the campaign trail for both frontrunners. Number two. He said that nobody in the military told him he could have left a smaller number of troops in Afghanistan. And then he was contradicted by his own military saying, no, he was briefed about that. This is what happens when a president cannot recall his briefings. It's true. deadly serious. True, Ari. Also, he could be lying. 2024, gaps piling up for Joe Biden. The more we see him, the more I feel America and Democrats are getting closer to panic mode as minorities now are running for the hills from the party and the president. Number one. Well, they all were. Joe Biden, the mayor, the governor, they all felt that open borders gave them new constituencies. And they called anybody racist or xenophobic who wanted to secure borders. So they've got a problem. They can't square the circle. 
Yep, uh, down goes the border bill. Plan B is now just emergency funding for Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel. What does it mean for the border crisis? And will there be around two on impeaching Mayorkas? We're going to examine. Uh, let's bring in Mark Thiessen, because we need to get smarter, and that's what we do. We read the Washington Post when he writes a column. We also know Chief Speechwriter for Bush, uh, contributor here at this channel, and a fellow at AEI. Mark, welcome back. Good to be back with you, Brian. Mark, real quick, your thoughts on today's Supreme Court hearing on whether the president should stay on the ballot or not, or whether he's guilty as an insurrectionist. Oh, it was a matter of law and a matter of politics, right? So some to be states and state courts can't decide who's an insurrectionist. There's no due process, right? The finding has to be made either by a court in a criminal trial or by Congress through impeachment. Well, guess what? Donald Trump was acquitted in his impeachment trial. And he hasn't been uh, he hasn't been even charged with insurrection. Actually, the January 6th committee recommended that he be charged with uh, inciting insurrection. And Smith didn't include that charge. It's a law in the books, 18 U.S. Code 2383, which makes it a federal crime to incite, assist or participate in a rebellion mm-hmm. or an insurrection against the federal government. And he's not charged with that. So how can a state court decide that the, decide that Donald Trump would participate in an insurrection against the federal government over which it has no jurisdiction. It's ridiculous. So this, if this thing is going to be thrown away, uh, I, I, I would be shocked if the, if the justices uh, upheld, upheld this decision. And, but then there's the politics of it, which is it, the Democrats keep telling us that they're trying to save democracy, but, they, and, but we have to burn it down in order to save it. It's basically what their message is. You know, we no have thanks. to deny the, the American people the, the right to vote for the candidate of their choice. We have to, you know, they're suing, right? And it's not just Trump, by the way. They're suing to keep no labels off of the uh, off of the off of the ballot in states across the country because they don't want point. to have a third party challenge. Great so point. it's it's who's the party that's the enemy of democracy? Hey, I'll they're, tell they're, you what. They, I'm going to add to that, Mark. Uh, RF, I talked to RFK's people, and <laughs> they are getting unbelievable pushback from the Democratic Party. Nothing from Republicans. Yeah. No, 100 percent, because because the Democrats know that if the American people are given a free choice, they have so screwed things up. And to segue to your, to segue to your other topic, which uh, I know we're going to discuss, which is which is the border, they they are the authors of their own dis- d- disaster, right? Because they watched the Democratic Party, Joe Biden and, and, and the rest of the Democratic Party watched in 2016 as Donald Trump rode the issue of illegal immigration to the White House. And so they decided as soon as they got back into power, what did they do? They unleashed the worst border crisis in the history of the country, which is now powering Donald Trump back into the Oval Office. It's like, are you stupid? Mark, obviously, you're used to hosting your own show because those are two great topics. But I want David Axelrod <laughs> to make you feel better. Uh, I want you, David Axelrod, to make you feel better about the Democratic Party or at least – Sober minds on the other side. Cut 20. And I think it would be very, very disruptive uh, in this country. I think it, it, it will uh, yeah. create a huge reaction. And that worries me. It worries me because partly because of Donald Trump. There's so much cynicism about our institutions already. And, uh, you know, the strength of uh, our democracy are these institutions. You can argue that, well, that's why you have to go the way the Colorado court Suggests, but I think in the minds of many voters, this would be a subversion, and yes. it would draw a very strong reaction. He's trying to be nice. 
He's saying, what are you thinking? And by the way, he, his, his president secured the border. And his president deported three million illegal immigrants to stay on the topic. I switched to because I'm coasting your show. Right. Um, but but no, he's 100 percent right. Look, this, 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 it, it, what, why is Donald Trump? Let's say you believe that Donald Trump wanted to hold on to the White House. Let's say you believe all the you know, that he's unfit for office, that he'd do things in office if he if he if he could. That would be detrimental to the country. What protects against that? Our institutions, right? So if you think January 6th was an insurrection, what stopped the insurrection? Our institutions. Yep. Everybody did their jobs. The vice president did his job. The House of the House did its job and certified the election. The the states, uh, the, all the judges, including Trump appointed judges, rejected his uh, rejected his cases and did their job. All the state legislatures did their jobs. The, everybody did their jobs. The institutions held right. And so the Democrats' response to Trump is, "Let's right. tear down the institutions." And it's not just about this. It's like if if if, if Democrats win in November. Joe Biden is elected and the and Republicans don't take back the Senate. Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin won't be there anymore. They're going to get rid of the filibuster. They're going to pack the courts. They're going to, they're, they're, they're going to make Puerto Rico and D.C. states so they can get four new guaranteed Democratic senators. They they are Country's they over. are a party that is that is determined to tear down the institutions that hold everything together. I'm more I, I care more about saving the institutions than I do about stopping Donald Trump. And, and if you're if you're a liberal Democrat or a conservative Republican, you should feel the same way. So your view on what Senator Cinema, Senator Murphy, and Senator Lankford put out, this immigration bill, which just went down with 41 Republicans voting against it? It's, so I wrote a column in The Washington Post about it um, and basically saying it's a bad bill. It, here's the argument for it. Here's the argument against it. Argument for it. It's the best you're going to get. It's a compromise. But you know what? We're never going to pass H.R. 2 because let's say Donald Trump gets elected and we t- keep the House. We're not going to get a 60 vote, a 60 vote filibuster proof Senate. And so that bill is never going to pass. And so Democrats right now want to compromise because they have to because they want to help Joe Biden and because they want to they want to Ukraine. Aid. They'll have no incentive to cooperate now. So whatever you get under Trump would be worse. So that's the argument for it. So take the deal. It's the best deal you're going to get. Here's why that's wrong. It's worse than nothing because it would actually restrict the power of the next president to secure the border, because right now the president has blanket authority to decide who can come into the country and who cannot. The Supreme Court held, upheld that in, in Trump versus Hawaii when, when, when several states sued him over the so-called Muslim ban. And they said that, he had, that the only restriction on the president's power is, is a declaration that it's detrimental, that allowing certain people into the country is detrimental to the interests of the United States. That's it. So he can shut down, the president can shut down the border tomorrow with an executive order. This law in an effort to force Joe Biden to shut down the border, says you can have emergency authority to shut down the border for 280 days in the first year if it gets to 4,000 people. And then that goes down in the next year to 230 and the next year to 180. Those are authorizations. But if Trump gets into office, and this is the law, they become restrictions. He can only shut down the border for 280 days and only when it gets to 4,000 people, because now Congress has superseded the previous law that gave him blanket authority. So this would actually stop a president who cared about securing the border from right. properly securing the border. Understood. That's uh, that's uh, fascinating. So now it looks said like Joe Biden's thinking about doing executive orders on the border. I can't find anywhere what exactly he's going to do. 
but he's not he understands doing a jujitsu and saying Republicans blew an opportunity to shut down the border is really not gonna fly. Well, so let's 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 think about this. He has broken the record for illegal crossings every year of his presidency. Every, he broke the record in 2021, then he broke it again in 2022, then he broke it again in 2023. But he's telling us that because in 2024 the Republicans didn't pass this bill, they're responsible for the disaster of the border. Who the hell is going to believe that? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Right. It's absurd. It's absurd. So I think, yeah, I, I think mean, they realize it's, that. It's, but, the, yeah. you know, so it's, it's going to be fascinating. I'm very curious to see what's going to happen. But I'm also stunned every day I'm reminded how dumb it was to get rid of Speaker McCarthy. He never would have put on that impeachment of Mayorkas uh, without the votes, without Steve Scalise to make sure. And maybe it might not have won forward anyway because it's going to stop in the Senate. It's all all pure symbolism. Uh, What are your thoughts about Johnson and that defeat a couple of days ago? It was a it's a big blunder. And they knew they didn't have the votes because, I mean, Mike Gallagher told them he wasn't going to vote for it. And the other the other two members didn't. And quite frankly, they're right. You know, they, we, we got to stop impeaching everybody. You know, if you replace Mayorkas, he's just going to replace him with somebody else who's just like another Mayorkas. It, the, the person responsible for the border is Joe Biden. It's his policies that Mayorkas is carrying out. Why, you know, we've we got to just stop impeaching everybody who, who over policy disagreements. This is, there, there's no high crime and misdemeanor going on. And, the, uh, and what, what the reason Gallagher voted against it is because right. all the arguments that Republicans made against impeaching Trump, they were violating and impeaching Mayorkas. I hate Mayorkas. He's a disaster. He should be fired. He should, uh, Joe Biden should be fired. Uh, they, they should all by the American people. But impeachment isn't the answer. We can't just impeach everybody we disagree with. That's what they did to Trump. And that's the problem with all these things that the Democrats want to do, is that when you when you violate the norms, then the norms don't just get violated for that one instance. And it gives license to the other side to violate the norms. And so, you know, if we if they succeed in taking Trump off with the 14th Amendment, well, guess what? Republicans are going to keep Democrats use it, try to use it to keep Democrats off. It's just our institutions are what separate us from the rest of the world. Our Constitution is the most beautiful document, perfect document ever written in the history of, of, of humankind. Stop, you know, stop trying to destroy it in order to stop it, in order to get your political ends. So uh, I want you to hear Joe Biden. Uh, this is one gaffe after another. Now that he has to speak every other day, uh, it is getting so alarming. First, this cut four. There is some movement, and I don't want to. I don't want to. Let me choose my words. There's some movement. There's been a response from the, uh, the, the there's been a response from the opposition. But um, it, it, yes, I'm sorry. From Hamas. He, he forgot but Hamas. It seems to be. He uh, forgot Hamas and was helped out by the reporter. In one of the few times he had a press conference and reluctantly took two questions. So I would I would like every American to listen to that. And I was watching Hannity the other night and he went back and showed what Biden had said about immigration during the during his debates with Trump. Sure. And you compare that man with the man on the debate stage with Trump. And it's like two different people. It's the, the cognitive decline is so dramatic between then and now. And it's like. Do you really think this man is going to be the president in five years if he wins re-election? 
There's no chance this guy is going to be in the Oval Office five years from now. It's going to be President Harris. Kamala Harris is going to be the president of the United States if Republicans lose this election. So you, this is, this is, so we all know that some people don't want to write about what we just talked about. Now, understand, they're not going to be able to prevent themselves from noticing this. This was just a couple of days ago in Las Vegas. Cut five. Right, right, right after I was elected, I went to a, what they call a G7 meeting, all the NATO leaders. I was in, I was in the south of England. And I sat down and I said, America's back. And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean, from France, looked at me. And so said, we, heard the, we already heard that stupid story at least 25 times. But now instead of Macron, he says Mitterrand. Uh, he, he thinks it's Germany or France. He can't make up the difference. And then yesterday, he said at a New York fundraiser, he twice referred to the late German Chancellor Helmut Kohl as former Chancellor Angela Merkel, who was supposed to be Angela Merkel. And instead of giving... The French leader, Macron, credit for it. He says he was saying it to Helmut Kohl. What the hell is going on here? You know, any one of these in isolation wouldn't be such a big deal. I mean, look, I was on the air the other day with Martha and I, I or maybe Dana, and I said I, I refer. I was trying to refer to Iran, and I said Iraq. I mean, we all slip up on the, on the air sometimes, and that's one thing. It's the pattern of this stuff, and it's the inability to. It, it, it's not just losing one sentence. Uh, or one word in a sentence, that, that first clip you played, he, he I mean, literally was painful to listen to. It's, it's almost worse on he radio yeah. because, because you're just listening to it and it's just, uh, 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 you know, it's not even a word salad. There are no words coming out. This, this, this man is not cognitively fit. And we are in one of the worst and most dangerous periods in American history right now. We've got war in Europe. We've got war in the Middle East. We are on the, right. on the precipice, potentially, of war well, in Asia. You're getting me very upset now. That, but uh, unfortunately, I'm up to a hard break. It's not like your podcast. Well, you're going to come up on my podcast, and we're going to continue the conversation. And, and the name of the podcast is What the Hell is Going On, and it's great. Mark, you got me really even more worried. But don't worry, Jake Sullivan's there to straighten it all out. <laughs> Mark, there you go, the real president. Yeah, thank you. Back in a moment. <laughs> Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So listen, I'll try to uh, get some calls in. We're looking at the arguments now on behalf of Donald Trump uh, and Colorado. Donald Trump are trying to stay on the ballot. He's arguing at the Supreme Court. It's fascinating. Alex, you're in Brooklyn listening on WABC. What's on your mind, Alex? Hey, good morning, Brian. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I think that Republicans impeaching Mayorkas was a stupid idea, even if they had the votes in the House, because one reason why you want to impeach somebody is for accountability. They don't have the votes in the Senate. They can't impeach him. Another reason, which is why the Democrats did it uh, to Donald Trump in the House, impeaching him, is because you, you want to form public opinion, and they wanted to turn Trump into this despicable person that was impeached three times, and or you want to you know, draw attention to an issue. But in this case, everybody's focused in on the border. Democrats, because of the bill they wanted to pass, and the you know voters. Yeah, we were already thinking about it, Alex. Right? Uh, we were, right? That's what that's really what Gallagher was saying. But it's amazing that they'd go through with this and not get their house in order. Gallagher's among leadership. It's not like he's some fringe guy that doesn't come to the office. They could have just asked him. Yeah, thanks so much. Appreciate it. It should be overwhelming too. Uh, they got a slight lead. Get something done. You go for re-election, aren't you?
breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. It's an honor to be able to go against him. I think he is um, one of the top coaches in the National Football League, obviously. Um, This isn't just a one-year thing for him. He's been doing this now for a while. So um, I have a ton of respect for him. He he is a great offensive mind, but he's also very sharp from a defensive standpoint on special teams, which makes him a great head football coach and a ton of respect for him. Look forward to the challenge. That is Andy Reid talking about going against again against Kyle Shanahan. Uh, now Kyle Shanahan's 44. Andy Reid's is the oldest coach in the NFL, but he's since Bill Belichick's without a job, and he's not ready to retire yet. Kyle Shanahan's considered one of the smartest people in the league. Grew up obviously under his dad. Um, uh, loved it, uh, obsessed by it, and he seems to be not over having lost the Super Bowl in the last time. He remembers, I think they blew a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter. Uh, joining us now is Sean Alexander, uh, 2005 NFL MVP, outstanding rusher, the Seahawks' all-time leading rusher, also uh, starred for the Redskins, uh, and he joins us now from Las Vegas. Sean, welcome welcome to Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, how you doing, man? Uh, the Super Bowl is live and ready to go. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, how many Super Bowls have you been to, Sean? You know, um, I actually went to, of course, the one I played in. I went to the first two when I'm my rookie and second year to kind of get myself like saying, hey, we're going to get there. You know, we're not good, not a good program. But then since I've retired, I've been to the Seahawks uh, win in New York and to the loss, um, you know, in Arizona. So those have been the Super Bowl I've been to. Now I usually come out and do Radio Row and help promote some causes. But but, uh, this year I'm actually going to the game because my – middle son turns 13 and I said son what do you want what do you want for your birthday and he said I want to go to the Super Bowl and I was like oh let's do it so right he'll be out here Saturday and then we'll uh we'll go watch the game Sunday and so many of you guys you go out to the game you'll talk to you, you you'll hook up with your former your friends your athletes your opponents have a great time but you don't stay for the game so people should realize most guys don't most of the players don't stay for the game so you guys uh That's you're right. there so Sean give me an idea Vegas I hear it's pouring rain out how how uh, what is it like? Are you there now? Yeah, I am now. It's kind of wild. Like uh, this kind of reminds me how when we were in Seattle, like it would rain during the day, and then when we come time for the game, it would stop raining. And so um, that's kind of how it's been for me. I don't know if the rain just keeps missing me, but every time I leave buildings, it's not raining, but the ground's wet. So so uh, so it, it must have been colder on Monday, but uh, but uh, Wednesday and today it's been pretty awesome outside. So I want you to hear, you know, you you understand what rhetoric is and, and road answers are, and there's certain times players answer questions from the press from the heart. I get the sense that Travis Kelsey the, uh, really uh, uh, really wants this game uh, in every fiber of his being. Cup 43. I've been on a mission ever since I won my first Super Bowl. Uh, we we made it back to, to the Super Bowl the year after 2019, obviously lost to the, uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, that's motivated me to get back to this point right here. So um, you'll hear me say this a lot, but I want this one more than I've ever wanted a, a Super Bowl in my life. And it's because of uh, the type of team we have, the people that we have in this thing, but also because that tier of uh, teams that have done it twice have uh, gone down in history as uh, some of the greats. So is that rhetoric or is that is that in your view, Sean, from the heart? I mean, if I'm playing against him, I'm using it. <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, in our Super Bowl, we had, we had Jeremy Stevens, a young tight end, and, 
he just came out there and he just spoke from the heart and was like, man, we, we want to be the best team ever. And Joey Porter, you know, Steelers, you know, loudmouth linebacker, says, oh, who's that guy talking? And created like a buzz where, you know, we were the better team, but it gave them a, a, even more of a chip that they needed. So I just always play the game of if we're going to speak, we're going to talk X's and O's, right. and we're not going to talk about desires because it keeps – it keeps everybody out of that. Who do you think you are posture? And so, um, so yeah, so the Niners are going to use it, um, but the chiefs now they can use it um, to say, well, man, like our guy said it. So now we're going to go, we're going to go stand for that. Like he wants it more than anything else. We all want it for more than anything else. And, and that's the cool thing about sports. You so can I, talk all the talk, but right. then eventually them pads got to pop. So a couple of things that goes on just because, you just notice things. For example, the Ravens look like the best team in football. They absolutely crushed the San Francisco 49ers on the biggest roll. Uh, even they, the Steelers, until they took their starters out, they're about to beat them again without their quarterback. And then they would just seem to be outcoached in the championship game. It seemed like Jackson was told, go win without wide receivers and a running game. Do you believe that that yeah. was schemed away from him? And was, was did Spagnola outcoach? Uh, that, was he just outcoached there? And could something similar happen? On Sunday, you know, um, coaching is a big part of it, and I think that everybody, um, everybody does their X's and O's. You know, I, in mind, I had the great Mike Holmgren. You know, hopefully, be in the Hall of Fame one day. Um, you know, he's a great coach, great mind. You know, from Joe Montana to Steve Young to Brett Favre, we get to Super Bowl, and you know, where I carried the ball twenty-eight, thirty times every game. We got in there, and our game plan was a throw it. <laughs> so why? He's like, they're going to stack the line. And I'm thinking, trust the coach. And so that happens. That happens where, you know, um, what, what gets you there, you think, oh, it's going to be so wide open if we do this, and it backfires. Um, and so I think that's what happened with the Ravens. You know, they're going to mean well, but, like, usually the Ravens, they run the ball, they play defense, their quarterback is accurate with the pass, and then he scrambles, and those one or two wild plays, Put them in, uh, you yeah. know, in a place to win, and they didn't do it. And so now you're like, man, why would you do it a different way? And it's and it's because great coaches want to find the thing that they know they can do um, better than to help the other team, and it just happened to be the thing that they don't do the best in. Understood. So, Sean, one thing you're talking about is Stand Together Foundation. It's a philanthropic organization yeah. committed to breaking the cycle of poverty in America by driving change from within communities. So, how do you how do you transform that mission into results man it's been so fun to be with the uh, stand together foundation i'm an ambassador for them and it's about 800 of some of the most successful businessmen women and philanthropic leaders in the country and uh you know they tackle some of the country's biggest issues and the one of the things that i'm really uh, honored to be a part of excited is how they tackle juvenile justice and so i'm uh, been helping uh, promote cafe momentum and that's a, a restaurant that was led by award-winning chef Chad Hauser. And Chad was amazing. He um, he uh, had a heart to shift how people viewed the kids in the juvenile justice system. And they were calling these kids throwaways. And he thought, man, like, let me go do my do good deed and to teach some of the kids. And he realized that these kids just needed um, people around them. They needed some people that remind them of their true potential. And uh, And he brought in... He got rid of his restaurant, sold his shares, and started Cafe Momentum. And and with Cafe Momentum, he uh, he got people and brought in social workers, psychologists, tutors, and um, you know the next thing you know, these kids are are 
are doing, they're going through the year program and they're becoming successful. So recidivism in our country, in most cities, is 45 to 50 percent. That means you're going to go back to prison when you leave your your, ju- mm-hmm. your teenage years. Well, recidivism for kids with capital minimums, thousands now, um, is 11, 11 percent. And so I told Chad, I said, Chad, why don't we put one in every NFL city? And so we started that journey together. And so now started in Dallas. Now we have Pittsburgh. Now we have Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, the Denver Broncos have jumped in for in Denver, and they've donated money and time and energy and players. And we got Atlanta Falcons are on the same way, so we'll have one in Atlanta. It's it's just growing. We have Houston, Tampa, Miami, all in the hold for for next year, uh, the next couple years. So the goal of what if we could just change how people do juveniles? What if we could change these kids that are right. 16 years old that might make mistakes? Um, what if they're no longer throwaways and they're actually called great potential? And so, uh, you know, I always tell everybody, like, who would want to be judged for something stupid you did at 16? I'm like, no one would even want to know what we did at 16, right? You know, um, right. let alone uh, something that may, maybe deserves punishment, but it shouldn't cost you um, everything, you know, in your 20s and 30s. So, so Sean, you, yeah, know, so you know who you should talk to, Sean? Great. Jelly Roll. Who's you that? know the, the country music store? Uh, he also no, went to juvenile prison. He, you, you, this guy's one of the hottest musicians in the country. Uh, was in juvenile prison wow. and he turned his whole life around. He spends all his time, free time, working in prisons, and he says nobody denies wow. that they belong there, but they just don't know yeah. where they're going from there. So to provide yeah. hope, so that would be a you. Someone's going to bring that up to you, and you're going to know what I'm talking about. He's actually going to be featured on yeah, a Super Bowl commercial I, too. Really, I'm gonna go look him up then, and then maybe I'll get to my connections. I was just uh, talking with uh, uh, Roger Goodell and some of the stuff that uh, we're doing, and everybody's excited that we can go uh, impact some more lives. You know, football does so many great things for so many people, but the ones who can't, maybe our voice could help them. Absolutely, Sean. So let me ask you: This is a general question, but you know, in 2020, everybody's talking about race and George Floyd, and where we're at right now. Now in 2024. We're not really talking about people taking a knee. People are standing for the national anthem. In your mind, have things gotten better? Well, I think that football is always about the brotherhood. And I think that, you know, as I would say, the enemy, the real enemy is always the divide and conquer. And so anytime that we are creating division, it's never going to work. And so people can have different opinions about anything and everything, but it should never divide. Like, that's part of the great thing about being human is that we're all going to think a little bit different. That's the great thing about our country is that everybody can be a little bit different, and we're all still this big American family. And so, so yeah, so um, all the George Floyd stuff, you know, it, it, hurt, it hurt the American family, it hurt the football family. But just like any good family, people are going to forgive, and we're going to move mm-hmm. on, and we're going to get better, and that's where we are right now. He's uh, the eighth-leading Russian in NFL history, Sean Alexander. Uh, former NFL MVP and Super Bowler. Sean, thanks so much. It's a great thing you're doing. The Stand Together Foundation, if people want to help out, where do they go? Uh, go to uh, cafemomentum.org uh, uh-huh. backslash Super Bowl. And he's going to be at the game with his, with his uh, son. Sean, lastly, what do you think? How does this play out? Man, it's, it's really wild because I've got great relations with a lot of 49ers, and I usually, I usually go with the Super Bowl with my heart. But my boys, uh, they're like, oh, Pachenko, dad, that's, that's the one. He's your guy, you know. They, they love how hard he runs. And, and then you got Patrick Mahomes over there, and you got that great Kenzie. I mean, like, people don't understand, like, the points that they are not giving up is, like, legendary right now. And I think that um, when you're going against that, like, it's hard to bet against that. It's hard to bet against a great defense with a running back that can control the clock. 
with maybe the one of the best quarterbacks ever. <laughs> so I right. think I'm leaning towards Kansas City winning, right. even though I wouldn't mind the 49ers too. And you, would, and you can't uh, look past McCaffrey, one of the most dynamic running backs around, right? Man, that's my guy, man. So proud of him. You know, I, I remember when he was a freshman at Stanford, um, Lance Taylor, who's now a coach at Western Michigan, uh, he was a freshman at Bama when I was a senior. So that's like my little brother. He, he calls me up and says, Hey, bro, I'm, um, I've got this guy at Stanford. You know, he's a freshman, but he's a, he's a dude. And, uh, and so from then on, I would always send Texas to Lance to Christian, just watching him grow. So I've been really proud of him. Just, you know, just like a, like any other uncle or nephew would do. You know what I mean? Like, man, like, just go get it. Go get one. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's so, uh, so everything. Right. And also, he just, uh, he's also helps it. He's solid muscle, uh, from head to toe. Uh, I want you to hear what Patrick Mahomes said because people talk about the 49ers' intensity. I'll leave you with this. I just want to get your impression. Cut 39. As a team, having facing uh, San Francisco years ago, uh, what is the big quality to overcome this time? Um, I think it's just um, their intensity. I mean, they play hard every single play. Uh, they bring energy. Um, and um, we know it's to take our best football. And so for us, uh, we just have to come in with that intensity um, to go out there and play, play our best. And if we don't, we'll lose the game. So he's got to match the intensity. Final thought? You know what? I think Patrick's trying to lull people to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's the old, that's the old, that, that's the great kind of talk. I, I love that. You know what I mean? That was, that was excellent. He's like, oh, yeah, they're just so intense. Uh, he's lulling them to sleep. He's, he's the most dynamic quarterback that, that, uh, that's playing today. And, uh, and, uh, and he's going to come out fired up, and he knows it. Go get him. Uh, Sean Alexander, Have uh, enjoy this week. Enjoy the game with your son. Hey, thank you, man. All right. Go Hawks. All right, you got it. Uh, when we come back, I'll be able to squeeze in some calls. I see you up there, one 408 And I'm going to play a little bit more from uh, Joe Biden this week. Not good. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. She's definitely brought a lot of new faces to the game, and uh, it's been fun to experience that. She seems to be enjoying the games. She's uh, she's a part of Chiefs Kingdom right now. It's uh, it's fun uh, seeing her enjoy the game of football, knowing that it's kind of new to her life. Right, uh, a little bit more about the Super Bowl. That was uh, Travis Kelsey talking about his uh, uh, first girlfriend. Or no, excuse me, his famous girlfriend, I should add. Just real quick on, on what's going on in Capitol Hill. And what's going on right now, the, we're watching the Supreme Court uh, debating openly, just audio only for some reason. I hope we get over that soon. Uh, audio only, we're hearing the debates on whether Donald Trump should be kicked off the ballot, whether he's an insurrectionist. I think this is a done deal. I, don't, I hope it's a 9-0 decision to leave him on all ballots and we can stop this. But the other big story is the Democrats are in a, a meeting right now, and they're had a retreat. And they're trying to get their game plan together. And they are losing two things. They're losing Hispanic votes and they're losing black votes. And he never thought that was possible. Hillary Vaughn was with Hank Johnson, who's a, a black uh, congressman from Georgia. Cut to. A different poll from NBC yesterday shows that half of Democratic voters have concerns about President Biden's physical and mental health. Is that a problem for Democrats? No, I think for the most part, people... Uh, understand that Joe Biden is in good health, uh, both mentally and physically. He's making great decisions. Of, of course, nobody is perfect, 
And so I don't agree with him on everything that he does. But compared to Donald Trump, he's a shoe in for reelection. The only problem is, Congressman, uh, he's losing every single poll, a battleground state, although he's tied in Wisconsin. More from Johnson on race. Cut one. A new Gallup poll out today says that Democrats have record low support from Hispanic and black voters. Why do you think that is? Well, I disagree. I don't think that's true. Polls are, uh, you can get them a dime a dozen. So who, who is responsible for producing that poll? It's from Gallup, and it's shown that un- under President Biden, support among black Americans and Hispanics has significantly dropped while he's president. Is that his fault? Well, if, if that is true, it may be true today. But I don't think it'll be true on uh, in November of this year. I don't know. I don't feel any better having heard that. Do you? Joe Biden is not strong in the stump. He's not going to change people's minds by his decisions. Uh, nobody's touching the border now. It's uh, falling apart, costing us uh, millions. We'll, we'll see what's going to happen. But altogether, it is a scary situation. And that's why so many people, when I go out and about, people are talking to me even last night I was at the Ranger game. People going, there's no way Joe Biden will be the nominee, right? I'm a Democrat. There's no way they're going to leave him there. Here's Ari Fleischer, Cut 7. If I'm Donald Trump, I will remind everybody that it's highly likely that Kamala Harris will be the president of the United States if Joe Biden somehow is able to win the election. That will scare a lot of people. But I want to go to this issue, Sean, because it's so much worse than him not remembering the name of Hamas. If you had actually begun that tape about 10 seconds earlier, what you would have witnessed was the United States president struggling to recall the briefing he got about the status of negotiations between Israel and Hamas. He could not remember the details. He saw the wheels turning in his head, the cobwebs trying to be swept out of the way. He couldn't remember it. He was struggling. It's concerning. I mean, on every level. Hey, go to BrianKilme.com. I'm going to be on the uh, stage and talking about history, liberty. We're going to have fun. It's going to be laughs. I'm going to be right outside Las Vegas where the Super Bowl is, Henderson, Nevada. Go to BrianKilby.com to get tickets. VIP opportunities where I get a chance to meet with you about an hour before. It's a show like no other. We bring up great moments in history, kind of. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. Thanks so much for listening. We come to you from Midtown Manhattan. We're about six blocks away. We watched two cops get beat up. We caught on film. We're still trying to find the illegal immigrants that made that happen. We're following that. We're also following the ongoing uh, audio uh, proceedings in, in front of the Supreme Court as Colorado tries to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. If this is successful, about eight other states will try to knock him off the ballot. Uh, and they'll probably be successful. But it looks like, and I hope, these arguments are pretty strong, and it's a 9-0 decision to leave them just there. Uh, we also know today that uh, Governor Greg Abbott will hold a press conference in a few hours and talk about the situation at Eagle Pass, and Donald Trump will hold a press conference and about these proceedings after they're done. It's all about the 14th Amendment. Is he the Jefferson? Should he be treated like Jefferson Davis and banned from running for office? This hour, we're going to be joined by Matt Continenti of the Washington Free Beacon, giving us inside Washington and this and this race. And Brian Hook is standing by, served as senior advisor to Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, senior advisor to Mike Pompeo. Uh, uh, he's special. He's got expertise all over the Middle East, especially Iran. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like if the Supreme Court said, 
We're removing the front-running uh, Republican candidate from the ballot. And I think it would be very, very disruptive uh, in this country. That's not the legal argument. That's the real argument. Trump trial shows own document drama. We have both. Robert Hur is done. He's about to submit his findings on the investigation into the uh, confidential documents that were kept in various residents of uh, current President Joe Biden. What is it going to mean for his fortunes, as well as the latest on this Trump trial? Number two. He said that nobody in the military told him he could have left a smaller number of troops in Afghanistan. And then he was contradicted by his own military saying, no, he was briefed about that. This is what happens when the president cannot recall his briefings. It's deadly serious. 2024, gas piling up for Joe Biden. The more we see him, the more I hear him, the more we feel, Americans feel, and Democrats must feel closer to panic as minorities are running uh, for the hills instead of voting for Joe or the Democrats. Number one. Well, they all were. Joe Biden, the mayor, the governor, they all felt that open borders gave them new constituencies. And they called anybody racist or xenophobic who wanted a secure border. So they've got a problem. They can't square the circle. Yeah, there you go. Uh, that is Victor Davis Hanson. Down uh, goes the border bill. Plan B is now an emergency uh, funding for Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel. What does it mean for the border crisis? And will there be a round two on impeaching Mayorkas? We will discuss it. Now, Brian Hook, uh, welcome uh, to the Brian Kilman Show. Appreciate you being here. Thanks, Brian. Great to be with you. Oh, man, there's so much at stake. And we're watching, evidently yesterday, if we're to believe the reports that I do, uh, that Katab Hezbollah leader was just taken out in Bag, just outside Baghdad. We know our, our uh, the militias that we support in Jordan, uh, in uh, Syria, were hit. And we know the Houthi rebels haven't stopped. What's the best offense forward, Brian, being that this is your air's expertise uh, right now in this Middle East in flames? Well, the, the, look, I served four years in the Trump administration and did a lot of work in the Middle East. And... President Trump had in place a foreign policy that deterred Iran and Hamas and Hezbollah and all these proxies from from all sorts of terrorism. And it's really hard to see the Middle East go up in flames like this. But this is this is the consequence when you don't you know, the Biden administration does not have a strategy. And and when you don't have a strategy and your foreign policy is entirely reactive and you allow Iranian proxies to attack American troops over 200 times, you are going to, you're going to be stuck with the Middle East that we have. So I was glad that he took out um, one of the commanders of Qatab Hezbollah. That's the group that Iran used to kill the three Americans in Jordan. But this isn't enough. We need to be going after a lot of the, just like President Reagan did, you have to go after Iranian assets. And President Biden doesn't seem to have the stomach um, or the will to impose direct consequences on Iran instead of indirect. Well, here is what General McKenzie said over the weekend. Cut. Uh, let's just talk about him. The fact is they keep on saying we're not going to hit Iran. I think this particular campaign we're on, we've done two things that I think undercut us. First of all, there's a continual reference uh, in in our policy statements about not wanting to escalate. Look, I I agree, escalation is dangerous. But if the greatest fear is escalation, we should leave. 
we can reduce the, the danger of escalation to zero if we leave. Clearly, we have higher priorities than preventing escalation. So we, we should recognize that. The second part is we have explicitly taken Iran itself off the list of potential targets in this campaign. I am not advocating for striking Iran. I am advocating that they need to be in the space of possible targets so that, they, that, so that they're held at risk. What happens when we say, well, we're going to strike targets in Iraq and Syria, we're not going to strike targets in Iran, at least kinetically targets in, in Iran? That gives them aid and comfort. That's not a good thing to do. So do you agree with that philosophy? Um, look, General McKenzie, you know, I worked a lot with him when he was uh, leading CENTCOM. There's no question that telegraphing what we're going to do before we do it is, is that's, just, that's just bad this is like playing poker and showing all your cards. It just doesn't make any sense. So I would like to see a Biden administration that actually restores deterrence against Iran and against a lot of our proxies, and against a lot, all of these proxies all over the Middle East. Do they need to know that we're willing to hit them, or, or would there be an escalation worry if Brian Hook was in there? Well, I agree with President Trump that you know if he had had a second term, you wouldn't have a war in Ukraine, and you certainly wouldn't have had the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, how it was handled, and the Middle East would be stable. Um, there's no question that the president left the Middle East better than how he found it. He came into office. We were facing ISIS. Iran was on the march. Israel had been kind of isolated by the Obama administration. And then President Trump came in and he you know, stood with our friends and stood against our enemies. That's a, that's a winning formula for the Middle East. And you can do it without overextending yourself. And I think you know, the Biden administration has this weird war, this weird sort of foreign policy strategy. They de-escalate to de-escalate. And unfortunately, that's the kind of strategy that is more likely to drag you into a war than to avoid it. No, listen, I, that's what uh, Iran has shown in the past. In that neighborhood, they only understand strength, it seems. That's the only language that Iran understands is pressure and force. And, you know, when President Reagan came into office, he understood this. President Trump understood it, that you have to escalate to de-escalate. And this, you know, this, this scares a lot of people. They think that, you know, I remember being in office, everybody calling President Trump like a warmonger and stuff like this. He created a peaceful Middle East. There was not a single major attack right. by Hamas or Hezbollah while he was in office. So, Brian, I understand you went to, uh, you were in Israel. Is that correct? Yes, I've been in Israel. And then this week met with a number of, um, talked with a number of very senior Israeli officials on where things have been, where they're going, and, you know, the status of things in Gaza and Lebanon and dealing with Iran. So it looks like Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, rejected Hamas's proposal uh, for the terms they offered to get the hostages out and have a four-and-a-half-month pause on the fighting uh, because uh, among the prisoners that have to be exchanged would be 1,500 for the hostages uh, and 500 of which are on life sentences. That's inside Israeli jails. It did not surprise me the prime minister walked away from this deal. Is there a deal out there today that you would sign on to? 
Well, I think the biggest priority right now facing Israel, I don't know if there's a deal that you can sign on to, certainly not on the terms that Hamas would like to dictate. But I think that, number one, Israel needs to uh, ensure that this never happens again. They cannot be threatened like they, like they were on October 7th. That can never happen again. So job one is to degrade and destroy Hamas. There are about 35,000 Hamas fighters, anywhere between, I'd say, 9 and 10 or 10, 15,000 have been killed. And, you know, these terror networks are still in Gaza, and Israel is not going to stop until they're eliminated. And then I think that's the biggest priority, and I think hostages obviously are a big priority. But, but for, the, for the future of Israel, Hamas cannot win. And this war, I think, is far from over. My my bet is that this war continues through the end of the year. Uh, well, they're moving into the place that they told all the civilians to go to now, uh, inside Gaza, and they're moving they're moving forward rapidly. They have suffered casualties, uh, well over a hundred uh, casualties in this operation. But I understand as they moved out, some reconstituting of Hamas is areas in which they cleared. That's got to be frustrating. Yeah, I think it is. But, you know, Brian, think about what we went through in Mosul. Yeah. It took, it took General Petraeus nine months to take Mosul. Right. And Mosul did not have 500 miles of tunnels beneath the city. This is going to take a very long time. We're only five months into this, and mm-hmm. Hamas has spent decades building an entire mm-hmm. city below the ground uh, that runs, you know, the length of Gaza. And this is going to go on for some time. I very much support, I've throughout my career been committed to Israel's sovereignty and security. And this has been the deadliest day in the history, you know, of Israel um, since since the time it was formed. Yeah. And they're going to do what they need to do to make sure that there isn't another one of these attacks. I understand. So at the same time, uh, how do you? Uh, Iran is the problem. The Houthi rebels, uh, the uh, that the Hezbollah faction, just two of the groups that are giving us problems. So yeah. what do we? What do you think we know about the, the locations and the munitions for the Houthi rebels? I understand they have a really light footprint. They someone described it as fighting fog. <laughs> I I don't think it's that hard. I mean, the Houthis are a tribal militia, and somehow the Biden administration has allowed this group to metastasize and grow beyond a level that makes any sense. This is a tribal militia on the border with Saudi. They have been organized, trained, and equipped by the Iranian regime for a number of years now. Okay. And the Biden administration took their eye off the ball the fact that they have allowed this tribal militia to be choking commerce in the Red Sea and up the Suez Canal is just shocking to me. I mean, these, these Houthi boats should all be sitting at the bottom of the ocean. And Including the Iran spy going. ship. <laughs> yeah, and Iran spy ship. That also should be at the bottom of the ocean. And Let, that is yeah. how you escalate to de-escalate. It's not going to lead to a war. It is going to lead to peace because Iran needs to be put on its back foot. And right now they feel like they're on offense. And guess what? The UAE, Saudi Arabia, 
uh, uh, Jordan would all love to see us do the same thing to Iran. It would work in their interest, too. Lastly, on the Ukraine aid, how important is it for us to get them aid? Well, from everything that I'm seeing with Zelensky, you know, he's this the war in Ukraine is starting to look like World War One uh, in terms of just like, you know, pitch tre- right. you know, trench warfare yeah. um, with the with the collapse of the border bill. Um, it's it, things are now very uncertain. And it's just, you know, obviously our um, support for Ukraine has been decisive in its ability to wage a credible campaign against against Russia. But very hard to predict how this is going to go. What do you think? I, I think we get them the weapons. They need to be successful, but we get monitors in there. Every gun handed off. I want to be there. I don't want to fund their pensions. I want to fund their military. They showed us how to they show us the, their will to fight. The Russians have paid a huge price. Let them be successful, and then let's see. You cannot negotiate from a point of weakness with Vladimir Putin. you got to get them on their back foot. Let them feel a little bit of pain. We let the North Koreans, we let the Iranians, we let the Chinese, to a degree, arm them, and we wonder why they got a second wind. While we we got this stuck in some debate, I, I just think you let the Ukrainians do what they do best, and that's fight. And I think even though they're an imperfect democracy, they, they, they're, they're a democracy. And they're going to get better in time. And I think we need to send a message that to be a friend of ours matters. Well, they have shown a lot of courage uh, in this thing. And, and I think you know a lot of the Europeans didn't expect it. But Zelensky refusing to take the helicopter out of Ukraine when it was offered by President Biden, you know, showed a lot of courage. Yep. And they've been fighting hard, but I think that makes sense. There's there's real corruption issues in Ukraine that predate the war. And if we can get better visibility into how every dollar is being spent, exactly. because every American dollar is precious, we got to monitor it. And that'll be the compromise. And that, that should have been there from day one. You guys could pull it off. Uh, whatever you want to say, there's no organization. Jake Sullivan, Anthony Blinken does not reassure the American people. The president <laughs> unable to explain himself. So you leave it to people like General Keene. Uh, Michael Waltz and Lindsey Graham to explain the stance of a Democratic administration. After a while, they're tired of doing it. Yeah. So yeah, it's true. I think if you can have monitors around the corruption, that would probably. You know, there's there's a lot of understandable concern about where the money is going, and like you said, it can't be going for pensions. It has to go for the war. Brian, uh, listen. Uh, I think if people would feel a lot better if guys like Mike Pompeo and you were back in power. So uh, best Thank of you, luck. Brian. Always appreciate your expertise. Anytime. Thanks. You got it. Uh, Brian Hook. When we come back, it's your turn. Bottom of the hour, we go inside politics, and we'll bring you how these arguments seem to be going in the Supreme Court right now. Exciting day. Don't move. Remember to check out Brian's show, One Nation, Saturdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. If you already have plans, set up that DVR and watch when you get home. That's One Nation, Saturdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Be there. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we are back. Got a couple of minutes here. And we're just looking at, and I'm going to talk with Matthew Cantonetti about this whole uh, election. But Nikki Haley losing to none of the above in Nevada in the primary is not good. It shows the organization of Trump. And also uh, Nikki Haley is going to get trounced today in the caucus because she did not pay the fee to be in the caucus. Felt it was rigged. 
But she did go to California yesterday, and she went to California to say, I'm going through Super Tuesday, and she's earning money along the way. I'm a, Listen, I'm not going to say anything negative about Nikki Haley. I am going to question the tactics of attacking the president from the Democratic side, from the left. I think that's crazy. I think it's crazy. And if you want to comment on how he governed, you could say that, you know, behind closed doors, he was like this, and this this where I would be better, and this is where I learned from watching him. But I think for her political future, I know Britt Hume, who I respect more than anything, says, I don't see that being a problem. I do think it's a problem because it's all for her about 2028 now. Unless something happens with this Supreme Court case and the Supreme Court justices do not seem to be contentious uh, or be embracing the Colorado article that the president uh, took part in in its direction and is no longer eligible to be uh, president of the United States. So that's what they thought. That's what Maine thinks. Some other states are going to bring that up. But I'm not seeing that. If that goes by, by the boards, and then Alvin Bragg is the first case after that. Uh, the other case is going to be a civil trial, which is by reports, I mean, could cost the president $400 million, at least temporarily. That's going to hurt him personally, but make him stronger politically. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Well, I mean, Chris, that's been a failed play for 20 years. So you are right that that has been the Democratic strategy for 30 years, maybe. uh, And it has failed to deliver for the people we care about most, the undocumented Americans that are in this country. Great. Uh, Now we know Senator Murphy. Uh, If you don't like the bill... Uh, or if Murphy got what he wanted, uh, that's exactly his focus. And that's the problem. And let the Democrats run on that, whether that was a lip trip or it was actually, if you look at the actions, that's really what most Democrats believe. If you see what's happening in the Democratic-run city of New York, the Democratic-run city of Chicago, Boston now overrun up to the teeth right now with illegal immigrants. If you think illegal immigrant first, goodbye, homeless, goodbye, uh, veterans, goodbye, recreation centers for kids. Let's think foreigners first. Matthew Continenti, Director of Domestic Policy Studies at American Enterprise Institute, columnist and commentary and founding editor uh, and editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon joins us now. Matt, were you surprised to see Senator Murphy say that? I wasn't surprised to hear him say it, Brian. I was a little surprised by his new euphemism for illegal immigration, calling the migrants undocumented Americans. That's a that's a new one. Oh, wow. Yeah, that that will... got by me. That's a good job. <laughs> yeah. Undocumented Americans. Well, the point is, Senator Murphy, they're not Americans and they haven't gone through the normal channels to become Americans, which, of course, we should celebrate. Look, I think this is also Murphy's second gaffe in a week because he was the one who tweeted right after the bill was unveiled that the Senate compromise would not shut down the border. And so that that essential, I guess, uh, kind of uh, silly honesty is what helps sink the bill, and it continues to show the uh, hole which the Democrats have dug themselves in on immigration. So a couple of things. Number one, uh, an undocumented American is a guy who loses his license. Uh, that's right. But it, I mean, I, I, I did not pick that up. The un- undocumented is also a term that sanitizes. You're here illegally. But what's happened in these cities I mean, you see what happened a week ago was a turning point, I think, for Americans, not for Republicans, is when you see these two cops get beat up. And then you see Alvin Bragg let them out because he was still gathering uh, information 
uh, and he didn't have enough information to detain people that beat up a cop. So we let him out. So we have the light on crime policies, illegal immigrant first policies, and then we have the price of illegal immigrants as it's released that a Democratic mayor is going to give them 53, wants $53 million to give them prepaid food cards. Well, it, the, the reason that immigration has become such a big issue, Brian, is that, as you suggest, it kind of connects with all the different concerns Americans have, right? It's not just the rule of law being broken at the border. It's not just the administration's open border policies, which have provided the sense that everything is out of control. It's also the fact that illegal immigration is connected to crime. It's also the fact that illegal immigration is connected to welfare cheating. And you now have a situation where because the migrants are coming over in such numbers and they're being moved to these blue states, it's also contributing to shortages in the housing supply and rising costs of rents and mortgages. So this is why we've seen immigration rise among voter priorities, not just among Republicans, for whom it's always been a big issue, but now among the general electorate as well. So so right now, uh, President Biden yesterday tried to say it's now on the Republicans because uh, 41 voted against this uh, compromise immigration bill, uh, border bill. What's your thought? Well, I thought it was pretty laughable. I mean, Biden is playing very cynical politics here because he knows he has a huge problem. You look at the recent polls. He is so far underwater on immigration. Voters trust the Republicans and Trump much more by double digits than they trust Biden on this issue. And so he's playing a cynical game where he's saying that because the Senate Republicans voted down this compromise bill on the border, then they're somehow to blame for what's going on. That's not it's not going to happen. And the best evidence that Biden knows that he's not going to be able to uh, shift the blame onto the Republicans is these new reporting that suggests he's looking at ex- taking executive action to address the yes. border, which is what we've been saying all along he should do. But it depends on what kind of executive actions he's doing. But the thing is, any intelligent politician, uh, whether you're running for the Senate or Congress or obviously for the president, you say, I would like to point out uh, one of the exe- three of the executive orders that President Biden did on day one of the ramifications. Uh, not having a replacement for Title 42. Number one. Number two is the third country. The first, the first country you walk into before you apply to get into our country, that's where you apply, not here or you're automatically eliminated. Remain in Mexico and the President Trump's pressure on all these Central and South American communities with tariffs, especially Mexico, if they don't control their own border, worked. Not perfectly, but overcoming all the litigious, all the all the Democratic pushback still had the president work feverishly to secure the border. The pre- this president undid all that. How could he not claim responsibility? Well, it was laughable. And I, I think that at the end of the day, he's not going to be able to shift the blame back onto the Republicans, especially because the way Washington works, people will forget about this compromise very quickly. But I, I will say, too, Brian, you know, more than all of the policies that President Trump undertook to secure the border. There was the general sense that everyone knew whether you were an American voter or whether you were someone thinking about migrating to the United States from Central or South America, that President Trump didn't want you to come illegally. That was that was well known throughout the globe. With Biden, it was the total opposite. And Biden was so desperate to reverse everything 
Trump put in place that he gave the impression, and I think continues to give the impression, that if you arrive on our southern border and uh, declare uh, for asylum, you will get into the United States and you will be able to remain in the United States. Until that message changes, I think we're going to continue to see the surge at the southern border. So, so Matt, I want you to hear this. We'll hear it together for the first time. This Maine Democrat, this Congresswoman Dequad DeHolic, explains why illegals matter. What about the military folks that are getting out of the military and they have to go through all the lines to start all over again, even though they have credentials? So my question, pretty simple, why would we fast track them and we won't do it for our military? They have the advantage of speaking the language, most of our military folks. So these folks that we're really working on may not have that. So it's going to be really difficult for them to say, yes, I used to be an uh, electrician in my country. I'm just using mine, which is Somalia. But that might not really fall into our laws that we have in this country. Okay, so because veterans speak the language, they should not be the priority. Wow. I mean, I don't think that's going to go very far with the voting public, Brian. I mean, you you look at what's going on with the Democrats and with Biden on this issue, and it's just uh, telling that they are kind of desperate now. And in fact, as that clip just demonstrated, there's been a kind of radicalization in some quarters of the Democratic Party where they truly believe that everyone has a right to emigrate to the United States. No questions asked, no legal procedures required, and once you're in, you're in. And the problem with that idea, not only is it wrong, it's also extremely unpopular. And I think that's why Republicans will continue to have an advantage on the border. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, So we'll see what happens here. Now at the situation, Matt, I think it was badly played. They said, we're not giving you foreign aid, Democrats, until you go to the border. So they do a compromise bill. Uh, Mark Thiessen, you do not feel it's acceptable. A lot of other experts and 41 senators agree with that. I saw some more positives in it than perhaps you. I'm not saying I would have signed off on it. Maybe one would have been back to work on it. Having said that, now that they've rejected it, what happens to the foreign aid? What would what do you think Republicans should do now? Well, I think that they should vote for the military uh, supplemental bill if Senator Schumer brings it to the floor today, as he plans to do. I think they should say that they are for sending military aid to Israel and to Ukraine in order to protect America, in order to advance America's cause in the world, and in order to secure our allies who are under fire. The real question, though, Brian, is not what happens in the Senate. The problem is what happens in the House. And my worry is that the Republican majority is so narrow in the House that hardly anything can get done. So while I do think this clean bill, if it does come to the floor of the Senate for just the military aid, deserves to be approved, I still wonder what can get through the House of Representatives. And I I bet you Speaker Mike Johnson is asking himself the same question right now. Matt, I I tell you, and I I know my audience is sick of me saying it, they lost a lot without Kevin McCarthy. He knew he knew how to he knew all the corners. He knew all the uh, how to cut the angles. He knew where to make a stand. It didn't matter. You know, he understood it wasn't about him. It was about doing the most conservative thing which possible instead of the idea, the ideologues that that drummed him out. I, I happen to agree with you, Brian, but I also say this. You know, um, the Democrats are implicated in this as well, because when everything went down last fall and McCarthy basically 
said, look, uh, the only way that I'm going to be able to manage is with some Democratic support. Uh, the Democrats said, no, we're not going to throw you a rope. And I think the price of that uh, decision True. may be Ukraine aid. And I think that that's I personally believe that's bad for everybody. But this is the situation we find ourselves in. Mike Johnson needs to figure out a path to get that money to our allies. I, I 100 percent am in for Ukraine. I understand they got to worry about the corruption. I understand. I'm very understand. Uh, sympathetic to any American who says, where's the money going? Got it. Yeah. I would follow it. The compromise would be naming monitors that both sides respect to follow every gun, uh, every every uh, every bomb right to the military. No more funding pensions and just make sure this thing gets done. And this way it would assuage people to know that we're funding people that are just trying to fend off invasion. We've seen this movie before and the world loses. And, event, and Russia's lost 300,000 people because of our weaponry and because the Ukrainians are willing to fight. I just hope we do not abandon them. Same here, because Putin won't stop. If there's anything we know, it's that he won't stop. But I also have to say, too, the problem in Washington is the trust is so I know. low because of Joe Biden's performance in office that I wonder whether we're just going to have to muddle through the, the next year until we get a new president. Who understands the priorities and is uh, and has the popular support in order to secure the border and to make America secure overseas once again. Matt, I, I have not been able to listen because I'm doing the show, but have you heard anything in the Supreme Court audio exchange uh, with uh, the Trump team and the Supreme Court justices and the Colorado team? This Jason Murray few, that makes you yeah, think that Trump it won't prevail? I the few snippets I've caught, Brian, suggest that. Trump is in pretty uh, solid ground uh, legally. There are a variety of arguments that his lawyers are making to say that the Colorado decision uh, was unconstitutional uh, just by the plain reading of the 14th Amendment. And I think that there will be enough justices who agree with Trump. And look, the Supreme Court doesn't want to be in this situation, and they shouldn't be in this situation. This is a legal theory that appeared last August. And now all of a sudden is being used by some liberal activists in order to remove the front runner for the presidency from the ballot uh, in the election year. I think it's a, a ridiculous situation that the court should not be in. But now that they're in it, what I see of the argument suggests that Trump has a pretty good uh, hand. He better or, or uh, then, I, you know, as David Axelrod sounds like you, Matt Continenti, uh, it would be disastrous. Here's a here's one excerpt. We can listen together. Justice Kagan questioning uh, uh, questioning Jason Murray of Colorado. Why should a single state have the ability to make this determination, not only for their own citizens, but for the rest of the nation? Because Article 2 gives them the power to, to appoint their own electors as they see fit. But if they're going to use a federal constitutional qualification as a ballot access determinant, then it's creating a federal constitutional question that then this court decides and other courts, other states, if, if this court affirms the decision below determining that President Trump is ineligible to be president, other states would still have to determine what effect that would have on their own state's law. And so Can you see the chaos that this guy's outlining? Absolutely. It's right there, plain as day. And that, I think, it's, it's kind of complicated to get through all this legalese, but when you listen to it carefully, you understand the strength of the argument that says that the presidency is not covered by this 
uh, 14th Amendment um, uh, clause that's under at issue here. And because of exactly if it, you left who was eligible to, for the presidency up to the individual states, that would that would pr- produce exactly the type of chaos that the 14th Amendment was trying to correct for and, and was the result of the Civil War. Mm. So I, I think that I think he, the lawyer there, even though he's t- arguing for Colorado, is actually making a pretty go- good argument for the Trump side. All right. It's a fascinating time on Capitol Hill, uh, and it's going to be a fascinating eight months. It already is as we see these uh, this dramatic testimony take place. And the, uh, the Supreme Court still probably got about a thousand people out in front. Pretty crazy. Uh, Matt Continenti, thanks so much. Thank you. All right. one uh, And you see Matt all over the channel, too. Uh, and you should read the Washington Free Beacons. Great paper. one uh, 866 We'll come back. We'll, I'll play the other cut that we have uh, from the ongoing Supreme Court conversation. Don't move. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The Colorado Supreme Court concluded that the violent attempts of the petitioner supporters uh, in this case to halt the count uh, on January 6th qualified as an insurrection uh, as defined by Section 3. And I read your opening brief to accept uh, that those events counted as an insurrection, um, but then your reply seemed to suggest that they were not. So wh- what is your position oh, as to that? We, we never accepted or conceded in our opening brief that this was an insurrection. What we said in our opening brief was President Trump did not engage in any act that can plausibly be characterized as insurrection. All right, so why would not this not engage? be an insurrection? What is your argument that it's not? Your reply brief says that it wasn't because I think you say um, it did not involve an organized attempt to overthrow right. the government. So That's one of many reasons. But for an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. And this and so riot the point is that a chaotic effort to overthrow the government is not an insurrection? No, we didn't concede that it's an effort to overthrow the government either, Justice Jackson. Right? None of these criteria were met. This was a riot. It was not an insurrection. The events were shameful, criminal, violent, all of those things. But it did not qualify as insurrection, as that term is used in Section 3. Thank you. Because, thanks. All right. Uh, so that is a little of the definition going back and forth out of Ketanji Brown. Uh, you'll see, you get a feel for what it's like. I, eventually, I think we'll get cameras in there. But you get to see these these uh, these judges come to life, act like real human beings. Uh, Jason Murray is going to bat for the Colorado uh, voters, and and uh, and Mitchell is going to bat um, uh, for uh, for Donald Trump. So think about all this money is being wasted now in front of this. But if you get ahead of this, this is going to be done in a day. They're going to do their vote, and it's going to come out. I imagine in the next few days because it really matters. Because all these other states are looking to kick the uh, any state with Democratic control is going to look to kick the president of the former president off their rolls, especially now that it looks like he's even more powerful than thought, who think he's absolutely going to get the nomination. So now he is really ripe to be banned if they don't stop it here. So that is uh, this is why I think it matters. I always think it's really interesting as a non-lawyer just hearing the going back and forth and to see how they try to find little weaknesses in their statements uh, uh, of each other and see if they could get traction. My hope is nine no. I don't want to see on party lines. If it's on party lines, I think it's going to further divide the country. 9-0 says, nice try, enough, don't waste any more time.
Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't forget One Nation, Saturday, 9 o'clock Eastern Time. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.